Well, welcome to Door Creek Church, our, uh, our teaching portion. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Ryan. I'm really excited to get into God's Word with you today. Um, as you just saw, we're in this series we're calling Come and See. It's a walkthrough of the, the, the book, the Gospel of John. Um, and uh, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12 today. I'm just so pumped uh, to be doing this with you. But first, uh, I want to... Um, tell you about a really important introduction in my life. It was when I was introduced uh, via our first date to my uh, friend at the time, now wife, 15 years ago. Uh, her name is Bree. So three things happened on our first date. Uh, the first thing is that she um, had to drive, um, not because my car was broken, because I didn't have a license. Uh, I was 20, don't, don't judge me. Um, so the, the other thing is that uh, she had to pay for our ice cream, um, but it, for good reason. It's because the card that I had didn't work at the ice cream shop that we went to, but to be honest with you, even if it did, I'm not sure I would have had enough money to cover it. So anyway, um, so that happened, but the, the greatest thing is that I just figured out that I, I could trust her. I, I just fell in love with her. I knew I was going to marry her. Uh, and like I, I discovered about her that she's brilliant and beautiful, uh, but she also loves Jesus, so that was really cool and important, uh, that she could drive, which is like a good thing, um, and that she carries cash, which ended up being a, a benefit as well. Um, what did she discover about me? Uh, she discovered I was quite a catch, I guess. Anyway, so... The point of this is, you know, introductions are really important because that's where you discover who you're going to trust, right? Uh, now, who do you trust? I mean, think about the person you trust most in your life. Think about it. Like, how much impact has that one person had? Probably disproportionate to most of the other people in your life. How profoundly have they shaped you? And we're about to read this pretty familiar story of Jesus turning water into wine. You may have heard it. Uh, and at one level, it's a really cool story about a miracle Jesus did um, to kind of bail out this very disorganized um, you know, wedding planner who couldn't obviously do math uh, for the guests. But at another level, there's, there's something else going on. And so before we read it, I want us to zoom in to one particular verse, uh, John chapter 2, verse 11. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it up or turn it on, you can turn it up if you're listening to it, I guess. Uh, so here's, here's what it is, and this really frames our whole time together. It says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, that's where the wedding was and where the miracle took place, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now, it doesn't say it was the first miracle. It doesn't. It says uh, it's the first of the signs. That was on purpose, by the way. Isn't that cool? Uh, it was the first of the signs. Now, there are other words that John could have chosen that would have uh, meant miracle, but he chose a word, uh, a Greek word, semoin, which means signs. Uh, and, and sign is something that points to something else. It can include uh, miracles, but it's so much more than that. A miracle is about power. A miracle des describes the power of the miracle worker. A sign describes their character, describes something important about who they are. You see the difference there? And what is the result that this 
sign had on the disciples. It says that they believed. Believe. This is a crucial word for John. It occurs almost a hundred times in the book. It's a Greek word, pistuo, and it basically means to put your weight on it, to, to trust, not just the power of the person, but the person themselves, who they are in their identity. There was something about what the story that we're about to read that caused these followers of Jesus to let go of what they trusted in before and to identify with Jesus and let him profoundly shape their life. That's the story we're about to look at. And and we're being invited to put our weight on Jesus, to let him profoundly shape our lives, to believe in him and to trust him. Okay? Magic, isn't that cool? So uh, let's open up to John chapter two. Uh, verse one. I'm just going to read the whole story here. Oh, actually, just one little quick thing about trust. Uh, So your life is shaped by who you trust. Your life is shaped by who you trust. And by the way, if you're a a note taker or you like to fill in the blanks, you can do that now through our online bulletin at doorcreek.info. It's really cool. Our team is brilliant and they're like magicians. So Go ahead and do it. And it's really handy to bring those notes to your life groups uh, and and things like that. So there you go. Now let's open up the scriptures to John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? I would never call my mother that. But I'm I'm not Jesus. Jesus replied, my hour has not come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, uh, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, now draw, out, uh, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best wine till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum Capernaum, with his mother and brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. So we're going to look at four characteristics of Jesus that John wants us to see to incite trust in us. Uh, and and this is what they are. That Jesus is preoccupied, he's willing, he's reinventing, he's providing. We're going to notice these four things. He's preoccupied, he's willing, he's reinventing, he's providing. Let's start with the first one, that Jesus is a little preoccupied. So look in verse three. Uh, oh, sorry, he's, he's preoccupied. We can go back to that. What is he preoccupied with? He's preoccupied with his own wedding. 
Okay, you're like, wait, Jesus didn't get married. No, not to a person, to a people. And we'll explain this as we go. So let's go to verse three. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Do you, do you feel the terseness in Jesus' voice? It's like something's bothering him. And he's thinking about something else. He's there at, at one wedding, but he's, his mind is somewhere else. He says, my hour has not come. Well, what's his hour? Well, as we go through John, uh, we hear again and again, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, until in the upper room, Jesus finally says, my hour has come. And what he's talking about is, first of all, his going to the cross, his, his glorification by being raised up on the cross and crucified and killed. And then beyond that, uh, he's talking, his hour includes um, being raised from the dead, his resurrection, and then beyond that, his hour includes ascending to the Father uh, and sitting at the right hand of the Father, and then even beyond that, it's the, what we know in scripture as the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, John, the writer of this gospel, uh, writes another letter called Revelation, and he, he describes this day, this, the, this wedding feast of the Lamb. I'm just gonna read a little bit of it to you in, in Revelation 19. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come. Who's the lamb? That's Jesus. And his bride has made herself ready. And, and, and then it says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. So Jesus is at this wedding thinking about his own wedding. Maybe you've been single at a wedding. You know, your mind tends to wander. And, and sometimes when you're single at a wedding, at least when I was single at a wedding, sometimes I think about my own wedding. What's it gonna be like? Who's, what is she going to be like? And Jesus is doing that here. He's thinking about his hour. And, but more than that, he was thinking about what he would have to go through to get to his hour. That in order to get to the point where he was uh, celebrating the, the, the covenant, the covenantal union between God and, the, and his people, that he would have to suffer and die. That the cost of his own wedding feast would be his own life. So what does this mean for us? Well, first of all, it just means that Christianity is a marriage, not a religion. Essentially, it's a covenant between God and people, not a religion. And this is really, really important for us to grasp. And what John is saying, this is the first sign, this is the first thing you need to know about Jesus, that he primarily characterizes himself as a bridegroom. We'll see in the very next chapter, John uh, chapter three, uh, that, that John is gonna call Jesus the bridegroom. He's thinking about this. And why is this the very first sign? Is that Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He didn't. He didn't come to start a new institution he, with new rituals and rules. He came to be a bridegroom and show us that we are meant to be his bride. That, that this is a relational covenant. And that as Christians, as people who follow Jesus and trust in him, that our way of life is not primarily as guilty sinners before a, a judgmental God, that's part of it. It's not primarily that we're soldiers in the battle against, you know, between good and evil and culture wars, although that is a part of it. It's primarily that Jesus is a lovesick bridegroom ravished by us. His people, men and women, 
for whom he is willing to pay the ultimate price. And he cannot wait to be at the feast with us forever. All the religious activity that we do, the going to church, the praying, the, the self-discipline, the asceticism, the suffering, the faith, the hope, all of those things are means to an end. The wedding feast is the end. That's the first thing John wants us to see about Jesus. So, Jesus is preoccupied, but I don't know if you caught it. Surprisingly, he's still willing. So uh, the, the next point is he's willing to do something about the wine problem. Did you notice that? You know, as I was reading through this, I was like, this is so weird. With everything going on, all the things that Jesus could have been, you know, thinking about and, and worried about and, and working for, that when Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine, that he actually did something about it. I mean, seriously, running out of wine at a wedding? That seems a little low for God, doesn't it? You know, he's, he's thinking about his own wedding. He's got disciples he's trying to shape because they're gonna carry the, the mission forward. He's got a, a evil that he's fighting against. And there, there are people who are sick. There are demons to be cast out. But he is concerned about the wine. This is really interesting for us. It means two things. First of all, it means that we need to tell him when the wine runs out. We need to tell him when the wine runs out. Like for you, when the wine runs out in your life, tell him. This really hit home for me over the process of the last few years. Um, I asked my son permission to share this story. His name is August. He's our youngest. And um, you know, a few years ago, he started getting out of bed and just saying, Dad, can you pray for me not to have nightmares? And it was like, okay, sure, I'm a pastor. You know, I'm trying to be a good dad. I'll pray, we'll pray together. And night after night after night, this went on. And the thought crossed my mind. Like, is God really concerned about this? He's got a lot of stuff going on. He's got racism to deal with. He's got justice to deal with. He's got the, the world over to, to deal with. Is God concerned about this? Should I tell him when the wine runs out? I feel like yes. I think, I think this is telling us absolutely yes. That the God of the whole world wants you, wants you to tell him about your world. So we, we should tell him when the wine runs out. The second thing that, uh, that we see is that we need to do what he says. Did you notice that Mary's, uh, sorry, Jesus' mother Mary said, do everything that he says, and they did it. You know, there's often... Uh, that, you know, I, I talk with a lot of Christians who, like, they, they're gung-ho about praying, you know, about being lonely, but they're less gung-ho about actually doing the work about, in, in finding and creating Christian community. You know, it's a lot easier to pray for unity than it is to seek people out who disagree with you and actually listen to them without getting defensive, it's easier to, to pray uh, for a spouse to come, you know, uh, than it is to find satisfaction in Jesus even when you're single. So yes, let's tell him when the wine runs out, but let's also do what he says. And we might find that Jesus answers a lot more of our prayers when we do those things. Now, we could right now easily 
just go like, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. Jesus is so compassionate and powerful and wise and what a cool miracle that he does. Uh, and, and we could leave it at that, but, but we would forsake uh, John's agenda because the real power in the story is that Jesus is reinventing religion. He's reinventing uh, religion. Uh, look with me here in verse six. It says, uh, nearby stood six stone water jars. Let me just like underline that. Six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Okay, what is that? It's interesting that John actually tells us the, the type of uh, jars uh, that, he, that he uses. Why does he, why does he point this out? Well, ceremonial washing jars, stone water jars, are used for one purpose alone, and that's for the guests to wash their hands before they go into the wedding. And this isn't like COVID-19 type hygiene. They weren't thinking about viruses, you know, or bacteria or things like that. Uh, So we have to kind of get that kind of thinking out of our head. Uh, This is about how there are some places that are so pure and so clean that you wouldn't dare bring the filth and the, the uh, contamination from the outside world into those spaces, okay? So like you wouldn't go to Governor Evers' house and, and knock on the door and go into his dining room and you know, plop yourself on his chair and kick your muddy work boots up on his table, right? Well, maybe some of you would do that, but th- that's not what we're supposed to do, right? Th- that there's... There's, there are some spaces, especially sacred spaces, where we're coming into a place where the God of all life is there. But first we have to stop to wash away the contamination and the, the sin and the death that we just absorb in our interactions with the world. Ceremonial cleansing was deeply embedded in the psyche of Jewish uh, religion and faith. And it all came from uh, Leviticus 14, 15, and 16 where God was trying to teach his people that because of sin, that we need to be cleansed. We need to be cleansed. So uh, we need water for our sin problem. That was true then, it's still true today. We need water to wash away our sin. But does water really wash away our sin? I mean, does it really? Of course not. Of course not. You know, you might wash your hands, but it's a heart thing. Sin is a heart thing. And so the problem that Jesus was facing in his day is that ritual cleansing, this hand-washing process had become this religious ritual that was just empty. It was just dry. It was void of any kind of meaning. People were washing their hands, but they were carrying into God's presence their pride, their murderous anger, their lust, their injustice, before God, and guys, the religious stuff that we do today is exactly the same. It can be exactly the same. You know, when I talk to people who don't go to church, uh, non-Christians, the, the most common thing I hear is they, like the reason why they don't come to church is that you know, they like our spirituality but they can't stand our religion. They can get into Jesus, but they can't get into the institution of the church. They, they like the ideas, you know, the purpose, the values you know, that, that we have uh, in Scripture, but they don't want to sign their life over to some dry, boring, 
empty, hypocritical institution. Have you guys heard that? Have you heard that? Why, because Christians have a religion problem. We have a sin problem and we have a religion problem. We need, we need water to wash away our sin and we need wine for our religion problem. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing wine into the symbolism, into the religious structure uh, of the Jews. The religion problem is when we let our rituals become the things that we think make us worthwhile to God. It can be our singing, our church going, it can be the way we vote, it could be our tithing, it could be our, the way we approach scripture as the inerrant authoritative word of God. But as soon as we make those things the things that we think make us worthwhile to God, they lose their power and we become hypocrites. So when Jesus takes these water jars, he's repurposing them, he's reinventing the old dry religion and filling it with something new, something powerful, something miraculous and intoxicating. Uh, you saw in the announcements we have this, this prayer uh, event going on. If, if, man, if you've been trying to pray and you're just really bad at it, which I will admit, that's, that's a struggle for me as well. And they, it just feels dry, you know? It feels uh, boring and you feel like your prayers are kind of bouncing off the wall. Or the same thing when you open up and read scripture. Man, come to Praying the Bible. You can sign up for it right now on your online bulletin at doorcreek.info. It's Friday, October 2nd. Uh, well, well worth your time. I've read some of uh, Dr. Whitney's books and man, eye-opening life-changing, powerful. I really would encourage you to do that as a practical next step. So here's the thing about Jesus. He's not throwing away all of religion. He's not saying don't ever go to church now. He's filling all of that stuff with something new and something satisfying. Ultimately, something that brings joy. Wine brings joy. It does, especially if you read about wine in the scripture. What he's doing is he's providing the wine for the feast. He's providing the wine for the feast. Uh, Look at me, uh, let's see here. Go ahead and put the scripture up, whatever I had said. Okay, so we're gonna talk about the master of the banquet. Um, so who is this guy? This, this person uh, who tasted the water that had turned into wine. So the master of the banquet is um, basically the party master. So just think about like the DJ and the maitre d' and um, you know, the MC kind of all rolled into one and that's who it is. Usually like a family friend, uh, it, would, it would be a, like a benefit to the wedding if it was someone of slightly you know, higher class, someone who's outgoing, maybe kind of funny. Um, it was kind of like this guy. Anybody? Anybody? Come on. I know you watch Parks and Rec. Um, there's like one person laughing over here just for you in your living room. So obviously one person has watched the show. If you haven't seen Parks and Rec and you don't know who Tom Haverford is, it's fine. You're not, you're literally missing nothing. Uh, I just thought it was a really good example of what this guy is, except this isn't very historically accurate. So can we get a, can we get a more historically? There you go. Perfect. In the first century setting, there's Jesus over there. See? Great. Okay. That was worth nothing. Just forget about it. So, the, the master of the banquet uh, kept the party going, you know, you know, kept people in high spirits, but one of their really important jobs was making sure that the wine was distributed because wine was important. Uh, like, 
and back in the day, without the distillation and our modern like fermentation kind of processes, uh, wine was way too strong to be consumed kind of in its raw form. So to make the feast last, and weddings sometimes lasted like seven days. Can you imagine that? Uh, to make it last and to make sure that people didn't get like smashed on the first night, um, they would water it down. So he would add like maybe, um, or he would have the servants add like one part water to wine uh, at first. Uh, and then once people kind of loosened up uh, and kind of got used to it, then they would add more and more water to the wine to water it down until it was just basically light grape juice and then the, the wedding was over, the party was over. Now, I cannot talk about wine and alcohol, um, even if it's in the Bible, without addressing kind of the elephant in the room because Americans have, I think, a very unhealthy, all or nothing approach to wine and alcohol. So alcohol is not in and of itself a bad thing. Um, Scripture describes it in many places as actually a very good thing, but we live in a culture that celebrates Binge drinking, uh, it, and even in the church, uh, we laugh at like escapism and the abuse of alcohol, but here's the thing. Uh, alcohol addiction and abuse destroys families. It happens all the time, and it happens all the time in the church, okay? That's kind of our context. Now, going back to first century Israel, they didn't have that same kind of mindset or, or that same set of issues in their culture. Uh, For Jewish people living in like an arid, you know, kind of more desert climate, wine wasn't like a luxury, it was more of an essential. Uh, And you wouldn't even think about having a wedding or any kind of party without as much wine as you could afford. And on top of that, in the Old Testament, uh, when you read about wine, and whenever you read about there being plenty of wine, that's always a sign of God's blessing. And there are some places where a super abundance of wine is actually a sign of the presence of the promised Messiah who would come. That's what Jews were looking forward to. This Messiah would come and the wine would flow. Okay, Uh, Isaiah 25, six through 10 puts this beautifully. I just wanna read this whole thing to you. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples, a banquet uh, of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud uh, that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He's talking about evil and injustice and death. He will, that's God, will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. What this is saying is that the Messiah is gonna come and feed people, feed those people who trust him with the most glorious feast, the best food, the best wine, but the the Messiah himself is going to feed on death. He's gonna consume and swallow our suffering and our sin and our shame and take that into himself. It was really interesting I don't know if you noticed in in our story that John doesn't just talk about the type of jars there, but also talks about how many and what their capacity is. Um, It kind of looked like this. Uh, So 
This is what one of the ceremonial washing jars would have looked like. Uh, it would be like kind of an entryway or up a, an ascending staircase. Um, and each one would hold uh, 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, so picture a five-gallon bucket and carrying that across your grandpa's yard or whatever. Like you've done that and your shoulder hurts. Okay, 20 to 30. I don't know how many times that is. But, but let's actually do a little math because this is fun. Um, so... 20 to 30 gallons each. Let's just say an average of 25 gallons, okay? So uh, 25 gallons times how many jars? Six. Thank you. At home, you can talk too. I see you. Of course, now, you wouldn't drink that kind of wine straight because it would be way too strong, so you would add at least that amount to it. So uh, 150 gallons, I'm sorry, six, six um, times 25 is 150, right? Am I right on that? Okay, thank you. Um, you can fact check me. And then add, you know, the appropriate amount of water so it's actually drinkable, and you've got 300 gallons, okay? So I looked this up. Uh, today, uh, one gallon of wine would equal five modern 750 milliliter bottles, okay? How much wine did Jesus make? He made 1,500 bottles of wine. That would take an acre, a ton of grapes, literally a ton of grapes to make. And a modern bottle of wine uh, contains about five servings, so do the math there, five times 1,500. Jesus created, with nothing but his words in these ceremonial washing jars, 7,500 servings of wine, okay? Let's say there were 200 people at this wedding, which would have been an insane amount. They would have had to invite pretty much the whole village of Cana. That would have been enough for everyone who came to get eight bottles of wine, or 40 glasses, okay? There was a ton, like this is just ridiculous. This is a ridiculous amount of wine. It's a messianic amount of wine. And do you see what Jesus is doing? I mean, do you see it? He's, he's saying this is it. The Messiah is here, and I've come to bring the great feast to make the world run with the wine of my joy. And later on in the upper room with his disciples, he said, this wine, this is my blood. This is what is going to cost to pay for the feast that I'm giving you. And, and Jesus is saying that all of, all of the, the things that he's doing is to bring festival joy. And Christianity isn't just a set of rules to be obeyed. It's a feast to be enjoyed. So many people, maybe you know some, have walked away because it's like, I don't want to have anything to do with religion or Jesus because it's just stuffy and it's just no fun. I want to go have fun, right? And look, guys, there are tons of reasons to reject Jesus. He's going to lay them out for us in, in this gospel as we keep going. But that he is not fun is not one of them, <laughs> Uh, C.S. Lewis has this really powerful quote that helps to kind of tie this together. This is in his book, um, The Weight of Glory. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, John is one of them, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So, Jesus is preoccupied, he's, but he's willing. He's reinventing religion for us, and he's bringing a feast. He's providing a feast. What, what do we do this, with this? What well, all comes back to trust. Here's Jesus. I mean, he's being introduced to us as not just the founder of a religion, but as a bridegroom willing to, like, who's ravished for his bride and willing to die for her. He's, he's being presented to us as not a Messiah who's too busy for you and too preoccupied to listen to you. To, he's not so busy with the world that he can't be involved with your world and do something on your behalf. He's a Messiah that is upending our religion, reinventing it. He's calling out all of our hypocrisy and we all have hypocrisy and he's filling our faith and our religion with new power and new life and he's the Messiah who wants the world to run with his goodness. The goodness that flows from the cross by his blood. So do you trust him? Do you trust him? You know, some of us, um, we've been on the fence about Jesus. We've been weighing, you know, um, siding of being affiliated maybe with the church and maybe some people that are kind of rough to be around. I get that. And, and, and Jesus is asking, do you trust me right now? And there are a lot of us who, um, you know, we've been walking with Jesus. Uh, we've been doing the stuff. You know, we've been doing Zoom life groups and we've been doing online church and we've been serving and we've been tithing and all that kind of stuff. And you know what? The wine has just run out. And, and we need to be reminded to taste and see that the Lord is good. So we're just gonna close in prayer. If you wanna trust Jesus uh, with, with me, with us, I invite you to do so as we pray. For those of us who have already done that, I invite you to just come to the feast, come to the banquet of our Lord. Jesus, thank you that you, and at your first opportunity, you show us that you're a lovesick bridegroom. You show us that you've come to bring a feast, not a religion, a covenant relationship, not something that's empty and dry and weak. Um, Lord, uh, I invite you um, to, to incite trust in us uh, through your word uh, and, and with, your, with the rest of your people. Lord, if you wouldn't be moving on the hearts of people right now, to trust you, um, I ask that you would give them the courage to do that. Lord, for those of us who just the wine has just run out for us, I uh, pray that you would fill us up again. Uh, give us the, the ongoing belief in you to come to you, knowing that you're gonna give us everything that, that you died uh, to give us. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and powerful and matchless name. Amen.